we get to the close of Black Music Appreciation Month, I wanted to have a conversation on Black music. So when I thought about who to bring on the show, I tapped into my childhood and I contacted an old friend, affectionately known to me and many as Day Day. He is Prince Derek DeJour. You may remember him as an award-winning host on BET and a radio personality in the DMV, who is currently on Magic 102.3, 92.7. Good morning, Day Day. Hey, good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm wonderful, wonderful. I'm glad to do this interview with you. We've been trying to do this for a while. I'm glad we made it happen. <laughs> right. Okay, so as I said in the intro, right now you're with Magic 102.3. But for those who don't know, you started your career on Teen Summit yeah, right, on BET. Right. So just give us a little uh, history about how you started your career. Uh, wow, that's, that's that's a book to be written. But we'll <laughs> we'll we'll tell the story by way of a podcast. You know, it was very interesting uh, growing up in DC. First of all, let me say I think it's kind of cool that you call me Day Day because only people who really really know me call me Day Day. They remember that growing up <laughs> in the neighborhood. So. I'm glad that you remember that. And that's always an affectionate name for me. I had a lot of memories attached with that name growing up in D.C. And of course, in D.C., we call it the DMV, which stands for D.C., Maryland and Virginia, because they're all right close to one another. And um, so growing up uh, in the DMV, I was a kid trying to find my way like most kids. You know, I grew up in the hood and the same type of environment in most urban areas. You have you know, liquor stores, you have the drugs, you have a lot of negative environments around you. But at the same time, we had a lot of positive things there. In our world, within the hood, we had a certain language that we spoke and we understood from one another, but people on the outside didn't understand it. So they would always give a a negative stereotype about those neighborhoods, which we call the hoods or the ghettos or whatever, which ghettos simply mean one group of people from one culture living in the same community. That's what ghetto means. So you could have a Jewish ghetto, you can have a black ghetto, you can have a Spanish ghetto. So I just like to always dispel the stereotype about that. However, though, there was a lot of negativity within that. And that's the whole cultural, historical um, backdrop with that we can get into maybe later in another time or whatever. But growing up in the neighborhood, I always knew that I was different. I always knew that I was unique. I always felt something different about me. So I just didn't feel like I fit in the neighborhood. The guys were some of the more rough type kids growing up, all the boys fighting one another and people being real hostile. And the city was like a concrete jungle. We didn't have beautiful grass in our playgrounds and all that stuff. We had concrete. So if you fall down and you scratch your knee or you bump your head, you had to pretend like you didn't feel anything, that you were numb, that you were stoic in terms of you couldn't show that you were weak, as they said to us. But unfortunately, that is very healthy to have those kind of environments where you have nature around you and grass because it softens the soul, softens the spirit and allows the young men and women to know that it's okay to cry. It's okay to um, be emotional. It's okay to be sensitive. It's okay to feel through your humanity. And so growing up, I developed this this tough exterior where I had to prove to these guys that I wasn't soft, that I wasn't a sensitive, sensitive nature boy, although I did love nature, but I couldn't show that side of myself. And I just got caught up in the neighborhood. I got caught up into selling drugs, dropped out of high school for two years. A lot of people didn't know that, but I kind of just slipped away and I got caught up in the streets. And so instead of me just being myself, I, um, I, I followed the masses. I followed the crowd because all the kids who were popular seemed like they were getting caught up in some of those things like selling drugs and all the girls seemed to be impressed with all those guys um, selling drugs. So I just got pulled in. Although my mom raised us in the church and I grew up in a church playing drums, singing, and I was very active in the youth ministry. I, I got pulled into the whole thing of, of, of trying to be like the other kids in my neighborhood instead of just being true to myself. Being, those, being as though I felt different and I felt unique, I wasn't in tune enough. There wasn't many kids like me. 
So I got pulled into that world, which led me to answer your question more directly, which led me to my career in uh, in television. Um, now, growing up, I've always been in the music industry in terms of plays in high school and plays in elementary school. I always played musical instruments. I was always very popular at the age of 10. I made several TV commercials. I um, I made my first record at the age of 10 years old. It was a 45 record back then. You had the albums and then you had your 45 records. And it was a Mother's Day record and they played it on local radio. So I've always been in the limelight over the years. And then eventually when I dropped out of high school, um, it's interesting how it happened because um, I got caught up in selling drugs. I'm hanging out in the streets, partying all the time. I was too too sleepy and tired to get, to get up in the morning <laughs> to go to school, you know, because I'm partying, hanging out with the fellas. And so a school teacher um, who saw something in me, he saw a gift in me. He said to me, you're special, man. You have something going on. And a lot of kids gravitate to you. You're a leader. And I'm thinking to myself, me? No, I'm not a leader. I'm I'm just me. I'm just day-day. And as you said earlier, I really didn't see that destiny in myself. I didn't see that talent that purpose in myself. I was so big portraying the image and living through my persona, trying to be like all the other kids. And the, and God has a way of working things out in a very interesting way. Because the very year that I decided to go back to high school, and I asked them, can they allow me to come back and to, to make up all the credit that I lost over the two years from dropping out? They allowed me to come back, and that was McKinley High School. Of course, prior to that, I went to Duke Ellington School of the Performing Arts. I studied classical music and music and all that. Then I ended up coming to McKinley because that's when I started really messing up in school. And McKinley was my neighborhood school. And so um, um, so then the year that I came back to, to high school and I went to night school and day school just to make up all the credits that I messed up. Um, I had to do a lot of hard work because I had to make up two years worth of credit. So I was going to regular school from 8 o'clock in the morning to 3 p.m. Then I would go to night school. Monday through Friday, and I had to go to summer school. <laughs> so I had to make up two years worth of credits, but I ended up graduating with honors, wow. which made me feel really good about myself. I was able to go back and, and, and accomplish something that I, that I walked away from, that I gave up on, my, my education. And so the very, but God has perfect timing. Sometimes we think that we're making a bad decision or a wrong choice, but sometimes God will take the foolish things in our life to create miracles, to create history, you know, to create purpose. And so the very year that I came back to my high school and I graduated with honors, BET was a, a fairly new network at the time. We didn't have smartphones, smart TVs, and you know all this kind of stuff. BET was everything. Matter of fact, BET at the time was pretty much for the black culture, all cell phones and smart TVs and TV streaming combined. That's where you got your fashion, your music, your music videos, your history, your, your black news. So BET was a you know really, really a big deal back then. And um, and so BET had an idea of a teenage talk show called Teen Summit. And they sent out letters to all the area schools asking the teachers to send three students from every high school throughout D.C., Maryland, and Virginia to audition for this show called Teen Summit. And when they did that, they sent letters out to a school teacher named uh, Mr. Powell at McKinley High School. And, um, and he reached out to me and said, hey, man, I'd like for you to audition because I see something special. In you. He, was, he was the teacher who said he saw something special in me. And so it was me and two other students, a guy and a young lady, we all auditioned. And most of the high schools, even though all three kids auditioned, only one kid made it per high school. But at McKinley, all three of us made it um, from the same school. And so that's how, you know, we began the whole movement with Teen Summit. And we auditioned and we all made it and we started the whole show. So that was my first time being nationally exposed 
on television, that the whole country, all over the United States of America, including the Caribbean and Europe, was watching BET. And they, of course, they knew me as Dejour, but in my mind, I was just Day Day from the hood. But they saw me as Dejour, and I began to develop a name for myself. And I had an opinion about various topics, teen pregnancy and drugs and alcohol abuse and gang relationships and gang banging. And so all of these topics that we were talking about as teenagers, this was stuff that I was actually living in my neighborhoods where a lot of the kids on the show, they came from the suburbs. They really didn't go through a lot of the rough kind of experiences that I went through. So I was coming from a very organic and genuine place when I talked about these topics. And so that's how I got on Teen Summit. And that's how my, my career pretty much began on a national scale as far as um, people recognizing my name as, as Dejour and me being this kid from, from BET, having a perspective about various topics about life. Wow. That story is just, <laughs> you know, you can you can drop the mic right now. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty interesting, right? It is. It really is. I mean, there's just so much to unwrap from that. I mean, it's like a movie. <laughs> You're from the city. I'm from the city. So I understood every word of what you said yeah. because I know those people who get judged and yeah. get labeled and trying to fit in to the to the situation you're in. But then when you look, I'm like, no, nah, that's not really him. Yeah. So just to hear your story and, and just know that you were able to come back is, mm-hmm. is a testimony of your strength. But what's interesting about that, Barbara, is when, when I was talking about God's divine timing, because although I felt like I was two years behind from dropping out of high school, None of the kids really knew that I was two years behind because I looked fairly young for my age back then. So yeah. some, of the other, some of the other kids look older than me, even though I was older <laughs> than them. So instead of just graduating when I was supposed to, I graduated two years later. But, you know, I still was hanging out with the same kids. But, but the timing was divine. And the reason why I say that is because if I went back to school a year before that or a year after that, maybe I would have missed the mark. But because I came back at the divine timing that I did, that's the year that BET had the idea for the show. So, and also, had I never gone back to school, I would have probably missed my mark. I would have missed That's right. an opportunity that would change the course of my life, that would shift the paradigm of my life. So coming back to school, the year that I came back to school, to finish school, that was the year BET sent out those letters and said, hey, we have a show called Teen Summit. So to the time it was divine where I showed up at the perfect time. And, and I guess the lesson in this for, for the people who are listening is, it is about God's divine timing. Everything is about time. You may feel like you're too old to accomplish something. You may feel like you wasted time and energy. You may feel like, hey, I was pregnant and I had a kid, but maybe nobody would think of me or want me, or maybe I'm disqualified because I'm this and I'm that, and I don't have this and I don't have that. But I believe that God will use um, everything that you have, even your bad choices and your bad decisions. Even even though you had to pay a consequence and, and maybe had to pay a penalty, some of your bad choices, but still there's lessons to be learned in that. And if you're able to pull those lessons together, it can be used towards your purpose to fuel you into your destiny. Because there's somebody out here in the world who's going through just what you're going through, and they need to hear your story or your testimony to inspire them that they still can make it. There's some kid who jumped out of high school who probably feel like they're failures. But if you hear my story, maybe you realize that you can make it. You can you can succeed, just get back on the train again, get back on your horse, continue your journey and um and destiny is waiting for you, you know, at a particular time. And blessings, blessings and curses are attached to geographical locations. So, it, so it's all about being in the right place at the right time. So if you step in the wrong environment, in the wrong neighborhoods, you may be the one who gets shot by a stray bullet or the police or somebody may bother you, attack you in some kind of way. But if you're in the positive place, in the right place, those same blessings, just the opposite of the negativity, those blessings can come and find you as well. An opportunity 
like I had on BET or an opportunity to go to college or an opportunity to, you know, create a job opportunity. So blessings and curses are attached to geographical locations, people, places, and things. And so when you think about that, hang around the right kind of people, go to the right kind of environment, be in the right kind of settings and places and attach yourself to the right kind of things. And that's how you'll receive your blessings or on the opposite of that, your curses. Wow. That is, that is so true. That is so true. And your story is very inspiring. Thank you. It needs to be told. So yes, we got We got We got to do something about that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I appreciate it. It's all good. So as the host of Teen Summit, you got to interview a lot of people. You got to see a lot of legends, music legends in their early days. So tell us a little bit about that. Tell us about the legends that you got an opportunity to to get to know and to get to interview. Wow. Well, that's interesting that you asked that because um, you're right. I mean, we really actually I'm working on several books, but one of the books is about my journey to BET. People just didn't know exactly how it happened. They didn't even probably know some of the stuff that I'm sharing with you right now. But BET, keep in mind, I guess it was really a historic moment. I'm so happy to be able to make history and at least say in my lifetime, I've made history being a part of one of the first black cable networks ever. No one ever done it before BET did it. Um, and so we created history. It was an opportunity for black people and really people of all colors, but it was for black people to have an opportunity to showcase our talent, you know, our skills, not just in the entertainment realm, because people always think that black people are just always about entertainment. But we had, you know, we talked about science, we talked about technology, we talked about education. We talked about so we talked about so many different things, sports and entertainment. So it was about the the complete um, spectrum of of the black experience or the world experience in terms of how black people are excelling in different areas in our life. But no one in the mainstream media, which was predominantly white, gave us an opportunity to expose our the fullness of our talents. They always just showed us jigabooing around, so to speak. They always mm-hmm. just showed us playing basketball, football, and just rapping, or maybe even singing, but they never showed that we were intellect. We were philosophers and psychologists and engineers and creators, therapists and doctors and surgeons. They never really showed that side of us, so BET did that. But but to get back to more specifically to what you're talking about in terms of entertainment legends, I had an opportunity to, um, to be a part of the onset and, and the foundation of a lot of people's careers. Um, I remember when Puff Daddy first got Bad Boy Records. He just got the deal and he was trying to figure out how to blow it up. And they reached out to us and we brought all of his entire artists on his label to D.C. And I, and I filmed interviews with all of them. We had Faith Evans. We had 112. We had Total. We had um, the Notorious B.I.G., which at the time we didn't really know who he was. And then they had an artist called Craig Mack, which he was the very first artist on Bad Boy Records. He came out with a song called flavor in your ear. You remember that song? Yeah, I remember that song. <laughs> yeah, and the Notorious B.I.G. was actually the second artist that blew up the label. So that's how Puffy built this whole label on that. So I remember Jermaine Dupree when he had So So Deaf Records. He was only, I think, 15 or 16 years old at the time. One of the youngest producers out in the industry. His dad had already worked in the record business. And he came up with a group called Criss Cross. And you remember that group. So, these, you know, this is the onset of a lot of people's careers. The 90s were really, really some good years because it gave birth to so much music. We had Jodeci, and we had Al B. Shore, and we had so many different R&B groups. We had Mary J. Blige. All these groups gave birth in the 90s. They, you know, they came out with their set, Heavy D. You had LL Cool J, who was around a little bit longer than most of those artists. LL came out, like, in, I think, the late 80s, I believe. He was really young. We had one DMC. So I just remember the careers, so many different artists that we work with. Um, I remember Teen Summit being one of the first shows 
to combine gospel, R&B, and hip-hop together on one show. Typically, the gospel artists always did Bobby Jones' gospel on BET, and all the hip-hop artists would only do Rap City, and all the R&B artists would do Video Soul with Donnie Simpson. Well, Team Summit, what we did was we were a talk show, but we wanted to add the entertainment element to hold the attention of people watching the show. So we would open and close the show with a live performance. So we had Marvin Sapp, we had um, uh, Fred Hammond, we had uh, Kirk Franklin, we had um, Karen Clark. We would bring these same people on the same show with Snoop Doggy Dog, <laughs> with other rappers performing on the same show, not performing together, but yes. performing on the same show. So we were the first ones to be very innovative in a lot of things that we did. Of course, in D.C., I grew up with Genuine. We grew up as just friends growing up in, in D.C. So there's a lot of different people. Kenny Lattimore and I, we grew up together. Matter of fact, we grew up together in church. I was the drummer, and he was one of the lead vocalists um, for a group that we made several albums doing gospel music. So there's just so much history here in D.C. in terms of BET exposed. David Chappelle, the comedian Dave Chappelle. We had a talent show on Teen Summit. We had a lot of local talent, people singing, rapping. Dave Chappelle came on Teen Summit and did comedy. And back then, people didn't know who he was. And it's hard for a comedian to be funny within giving him 10 minutes to talk. And so he tried his best to do his thing, but he was young, up and coming at the time and um, made his mark. So, so many people created their careers and came through the pathways of BET to expose their talent. I remember there was a clothing company called FUBU back in the 90s. You know, now FUBU is a multi-billion dollar company. But I remember when those guys were making t-shirts out of their living room. And they used to ask me and some of the other hosts to wear their t-shirts to give it some national exposure for them. <laughs> Can you please wear our t-shirts? Can you put your, our t-shirts on your dancers? And so we would always wear their clothes, FUBU, F-U-B. And eventually LL Cool J got involved with the campaign and took it to a whole nother level when a lot of rappers and the hip hop culture started purchasing their stuff and they became a multi-billion dollar company. So Carl Kanai, it's a lot of people who, who really expose their talents and their creativity through BET, through Team Summit and through Rap City. And, and again, that was just the Team Summit aspect. When I used to host Rap City, we didn't even play Southern rap. Nowadays, Southern rap, or what they call it, the Dirty South, that's like the biggest thing ever. Back then, it was just the East Coast rappers who were big. And then eventually you start having some rappers from like Philadelphia, New Jersey, which is still East Coast. And then you start having like the, the West Coast rappers, that whole West Coast movement, NWA. So all of these guys had no other place to play their videos except BET. And then MTV came along with Yo! MTV Rap. So they kind of took the idea and played some, some of the black videos on when MTV and the BET was the main hub for black entertainers to expose their talent. There was no other place that would really accept black music in that kind of way, unless you were a pop artist where you were kind of selling to a white demographic, even though you were a black artist, like Michael Jackson, for example, who was the first black artist on MTV. They didn't even play black music at all. So he broke that barrier down. You remember that, right? When he came out with Billie Jean, yeah, Billie Jean and, 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 and all that, that stuff and, yes. and, you know, um, beat it and thriller. And so, again, BET was really um, a hub for black artists. They were begging and banging on the doors just to get their stuff played. So because I was one of the first hosts, Donnie Simpson, myself, and other people to host various shows on BET, we were the ones they came to to give them an opportunity. So I always tell my kids, you know, I never really looked at it at the time. I was just having fun being a kid because I started at BET when I was like 18 years old. It was really, really me making history. Know, of a situation where people would talk about for years later that just like when we talk about Martin Luther King or we talk about Rosa Parks, we talk about Malcolm X, think about it. People will, for generations, talk about BET. They would talk about BET in terms of us giving them an opportunity. Matter of fact, BET's theme at the time was we're giving you a choice at BET. 
we gave people a choice, an alternative to what they already had there. So that's how it happened. Wow. That is a lot of history. And it would really be nice to go back and actually see that. When I think about like this generation, I don't think they understand how it was back then. You know, it's kind of like you said, like it's, it's history that they don't know about. But I think if they knew more of this, they would appreciate where things are today. Yeah, definitely. I agree. I mean, as I was saying about BET and stuff, and I was just thinking while you were talking, I'm thinking like, again, I talked about now how the Southern rap music is like the language of this generation. They love the, the Southern rappers. And mm-hmm. but back then, like I told you, it was the East Coast rappers and it was the West Coast. And now the South is reigning supreme in, in terms of hip hop. But I remember when um, BET didn't even play Southern rap. <laughs> they would only play rappers from the East Coast. And I remember traveling around the country hosting different events for BET. And I remember kids coming to me saying, hey, man, you guys have Puff Daddy. He's like a big deal on the East Coast. But we have somebody named Master P. And I was like, who is Master P? I never even heard of this guy before. And Master P had already been selling millions of records down south. But nobody on the East Coast ever heard of him. He was only selling his records down south. And so Master P was a big deal back then. And so BET didn't play their videos. And I remember bringing Outkast the rap group Outkast to BET and exposing them. I remember the Goody Mob. I exposed them. So I was bringing in some of these Southern rappers that BET really didn't play, but they gave me an opportunity and trusted me enough to expose some of their videos. Outkast, Goody Mob. Um, it was different Southern rappers slowly started infiltrating BET's um, playlist. And we, you know, we infiltrated the Southern rap. And then you had Luke from the Miami, even though they're still Southern but there were two different types of Southern rap. You had the, the Atlanta, Alabama, Mississippi kind of rap. And then you had the Florida rap, like Luke Skywalker. And he had those songs, Pop That Coochie and all those controversial songs. And when he, when he came out, they called it Miami bass music. So it's just so much history. Probably just need to really, I'm actually thinking about doing a documentary about this, but it's so much history that we, we can talk about that nobody really knows about from BET, that we were the first ones to do what we did. And we did it in, in a great way, very grandioso kind of way. And we, we paved the way for a lot of these artists today. Matter of fact, when I was on BET, we didn't even have a BET award. There was no such thing as the BET award. Now we have the BET awards every year. Matter of fact, I'll just give you like a little historical moment that a lot of people don't know. Um, I was a part of the very first BET awards, and it wasn't the way that people see it now. We did it in a small studio with about maybe, maybe less than 50 people, and we only had two or three artists. And we just gave awards away to certain people. <laughs> it was really like wow. a, a spinoff of Video Soul. We were trying to test it out. And I used to always tell them, hey, guys, we need to do our own award show. I tell you, MTV had their own award show, BET. They kept saying, yeah, we'll get to it eventually. That's down the line. They just thought that was such a big deal. It was something too big for us to do at the time. And it's funny how now BET has the BET Awards. And, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are involved in watching it on television. But the very first BET Awards, we only had one or two guests. Because the other guests didn't even show up. <laughs> it was me, it was me, Donnie Simpson, and Sherry Carter. And we were making presentations, but half of the people who won the awards, we kept saying, hey, well, unfortunately, they can't be here today. <laughs> so we'll accept <laughs> the award. And I remember um, George Clinton, the guy from Parliament, you know, Funkadelics. Oh, yeah. He was one of the few guests that showed up. And he came with all this wild clothing on, you know, how you dress with all these <laughs> colors on and high heel shoes. Hey, baby, bubba, you know, stuff. And he came and accepted his award. And so it was really about the crowd and the audience that we had. And us just making presentations. That was the first official BET award. And then later on, years later, they came out with the big deal, the BET awards, you know, in Atlanta, Georgia, L.A., like a regular award show. So it's just so much history to talk about in terms of BET and how I got started and and so you asked me how I got started. I kind of skipped something because I talked about me being on Team Summit. 
So Teen Summer was the very first show that I did as a teenager. I was on the panel with a bunch of high school kids, and we all talked about various topics and interviewed different celebrities, Mary J, Puff Daddy. We interviewed different actors and, and models and different things like that. But, but, but after I did Teen Summer when I was in high school, I kind of became like the celebrity while still being in high school. I was like the 11th grade. And so people recognized me nationally on TV, and kids would come up to me and say, hey, my cousin recognized you on TV, and they live down south. And that's when I began to realize, wow, people know me everywhere. Like, I'm not really used to it. I'm thinking I'm just day-day from the neighborhood. But now, people know me all across the country. I would travel for BET, and people would recognize my name in the Caribbean, and in London, walking down the street. I'm thinking, wow, how do they know my name? I didn't really get it. I didn't understand how the celebrity thing worked or how fame worked. And so I'm thinking, it's so funny to be known and recognized in places that I've never been before. They know my name. So that was kind of interesting. And then years later, after I did Teen Summit, most kids at the show, we aged out. Once you got a certain age, you had to leave the show, and they would audition new students to come in. But I was one of the only students that they kept around. Because I'm out, out of all the kids on Teen Summit, it was about maybe 25 of us. I was the only kid on the show who got fan mail. And, uh, and wow. B thought that was pretty fascinating. They're like, wow, out of all the kids here, this one guy, Deja, was getting fan mail from other teenagers all across the country. And I think that I got fan mail, not because I was the best or the best looking or anything super duper special per se, but I think it's because most of the kids can relate to me because all the topics that we talked about, teen pregnancy, drugs, alcohol, crime, death, murder, this was stuff that I was actually living every day in my neighborhood. And most of the kids that were on the show didn't come from those kind of neighborhoods. They came from more suburbial neighborhoods where they had a mom and a dad in a home where they had, you know, nice home, nice neighborhood, you know, the way that it probably should be. But unfortunately, that wasn't our story. And most kids around America, unfortunately, it wasn't their story. You know, they came from single home moms and moms on welfare and they're struggling and they lived in the hood like me. So these kids were writing letters and saying, I can relate to this guy, Bejo. So I think BET realized that they were kind of onto something, that I had an audience that followed me. They kept me around and eventually I um I auditioned to become the, the hip hop news guy for Rap City. That was my way of stepping out of Teen Summit and moving to Rap City. They auditioned me and I, I passed the audition and I became the hip hop informer on BET. So what so when the show Rap City was around, Chris Thomas, the comedian was the host at the time, they let me do a segment called Hip Hop News. And I would just do this one segment and give you the latest lowdown, latest news the entertainment news in the hip-hop world. And eventually, I went from being the hip-hop news guy to becoming the show's co-host on a regular basis. And then I went from being the show's co-host to eventually becoming the host of the show. And so that's how the whole thing happened. And then years later, I ended up coming back and became the host of Teen Summit. Initially, there was another host when I was in high school. I was just one of the kids on the show, as I said. But years later, after my years with Rap City, I became the host of Teen Summit with Ananda Lewis. And we did the show together, which took Teen Summit to a whole nother level. So the very show that gave me my start, I became the host of years later. And that's pretty much the rest was history. And then, of course, from there, that's when radio came along. And I became a radio personality and, and all that. Just to put this in perspective, we're talking about a time when there was an Internet. There wasn't TikTok where you become a, an overnight success in right. five seconds in your pajamas. <laughs> I mean, and it's funny you say that, Barbara. It's so funny because you're right. I mean, it's, now I can't imagine living without work. my cell phone. I can't imagine living without work. my cell phone. But we had to really, really work. We had to go and film stuff. We had to record and we had to show up. And there wasn't no FaceTime. There wasn't no Zoom. We didn't have we didn't yes. have we didn't have streaming. We didn't have satellite TV. We didn't have 
Um, we barely had cable. Cable was a new thing at the time. So it sure was. So we didn't have any of that stuff that these guys and you couldn't do TikTok. We didn't have Facebook, TikTok, we didn't have social media. None of this stuff even existed at the time. And that's funny when you think about it. <laughs> when you were talking about how you would be in London and someone recognized your name, I I said that to say that wasn't an easy feat. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't and, something that they just looked on their phone like, hey, that's the same guy on oh, my no, phone. No, 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 not at all. I mean, there, there was no phone. We had phones, but we didn't have smartphones at the time. So you just had a basic phone. You, matter of fact, we couldn't even text. All you can do is really call. And then texting kind of came along with the beepers and cell phones. We were mm-hmm. able to text just a little bit, but you couldn't text the way that you do now. It's kind of limited. And I kind of feel like our parents, you know, every generation have their stories to tell about how things was when they were growing up. And I'm thinking, wow. Now I'm telling my story. At the time, it seems so fresh and new. But now I feel like I'm a part of the generation that's telling some old stories of how things used to be. Um, we didn't have Snapchat. We didn't have downloads. Matter When you wanted the album, you went out to the record store and purchased the album or purchased a cassette tape. We didn't have downloads. So nowadays, these kids don't even have to touch any material. They just download it on their phone and listen to their music. So uh, it's amazing how things have changed. Exactly. And it's just good to hear you talk about time when these people who are legends now in their early days like you said you went down south and master P. exactly let's go back to to the music industry you mentioned michael jackson um the other day was the anniversary of michael jackson's death yeah. tell us a little bit about where you were how you felt and and how that how that has affected the music culture well i don't really know exactly where i was that very moment when i heard about it i do know i was somewhere near television i remember seeing the commercial can't remember where I was at the time. However, though, it was definitely, I think, it was, I mean, it was something that just, like, pierced your heart. To me, when Michael Jackson died, it was almost the same effect as when we heard about September 11th. You know, when we heard about the Twin Towers coming down, that moment affected the entire world. And and that same kind of moment happened when George Floyd died. Just the same. Mm -hmm. To see and witness a guy dying on live television right there in front of you. And we've heard stories about the police killers, but to see the police killing a man sitting on his neck, that's the same feeling we had when Michael Jackson died. And so um, I remember it, it was like Michael Jackson was kind of like, <laughs> I hate to give it that example, but it was like Black Jesus. It's like <laughs> on the television show Good Times, they had a picture of Black Jesus on the wall. Black people were like, hey, that's Black Jesus. But I'm just saying, but Michael Jackson was like the biggest thing that we've ever seen in the entertainment industry. He was the king of pop. He was so good that he was, it wasn't even a black or white issue. Michael was just a legend, a king. Of, even white people had to acknowledge the fact that he was the best, the best at what he did in the way that he did it. The closest example they probably could give would be Elvis Presley, which a lot of his music and stuff came from black people anyway. So the bottom line is that when Michael Jackson got him, it just really broke our hearts, man. Like he was a part of our family. Like he was a, a family member. Like, you know, like you lost a loved one. Everybody knew Michael. We all aspired to be like the Jackson Five growing up or to be, like Michael Jackson and to dance like Michael Jackson with the moonwalk. Even if you wasn't really a Michael Jackson fan, Michael's one of the few artists that even the most hardcore brothers in the hood, they're like, yo, that's Michael Jackson. That's my man. <laughs> you know what I mean? They, they didn't want to come off looking like Michael wearing the, the beaded jacket or anything like that or wear the, um, the high water pants. But everybody related to Michael Jackson because he was bigger than just being an artist. I think he was an icon. He was a symbol. He was a symbolism. He was a brand. He was a um, he was he was the person that you considered to be a movement. You considered Michael Jackson to be a sound, and not just an artist, but he was a sound. And so, it was unfortunate. Matter of fact, on the radio yesterday, I just make mention of his anniversary, the anniversary of his death, because he died in uh, 2000, 
odd. So it's been a number of years since Michael Jackson died. He died at 50 years old. And when I thought about it, I'm like, wow, Michael is fairly young, fairly young guy. He died at 50 years old and only weighed 136 pounds. So Michael died very frail, very fragile, very stressed because of he's trying to keep up this image of being the king of pop. And there's a price to pay for fame. I guess it's the point that I'm trying to make. How I look at it in terms of Black History or Black Music Month. What is a Black Music Month? It's Black Music Appreciation yeah, Month. Yeah, Black Music Appreciation Month. But I guess it in a sense it is still Black History every yeah. month and every day. But, but, you know, when I think about it, I think about the tragedy that happened with Michael Jackson and Prince. Some of these legends, Whitney Houston, including even Elvis Presley. It doesn't have to be just a Black thing. But I'm just saying in general, when you have that kind of fame, that, that, that type of fortune and fame is a price to pay with it because now your life is no longer your own. Everybody is looking at you. They're looking to see all of your flaws, your imperfections. They're looking to see you to watch you make a mistake. They, they're watching to see you get divorced. They're watching to see if your kids turn out bad or good because their father and mom is famous. They're looking to see every single flaw. And, and the bottom line is no matter how famous you are, you're still human. You have the same humanity that other people have, but when you're famous or rich, people see you as being untouchable. They see you as being a little G-God. They see you as being someone beyond where you are. And, and that puts a lot of pressure on you to try to keep up that image, that image of perfection. So you have to do the surgeries, keep your look and your image up so you can always look forever young. You do the, the lip surgeries and the nose surgery like Michael Jackson. You have to do you know, all the different things that he did to alter his body. And eventually, it stressed him out so bad when he couldn't even sleep at night anymore. And basically, what killed him was medicine that he used for pain management and sleeping deprivation. He had insomnia. He had anxiety. And so all these different, little 10 different drugs they did with Michael Jackson's body when they did the autopsy. All because this guy's trying to maintain his image of being the best. You know, even the day before he died, he was rehearsing for a world tour, his final tour. So even till his dying day, he was, he was aiming to keep up this image of being the king of pop. He had to be the best. He had to do it bigger and better than everybody else. And being bigger and better and being the king of pop basically cost him his life. But we can take it a step further and just talk about the industry in general, how a lot of people aspire to be like their famous, these famous athletes or these famous entertainers. But the truth is there's a price that they have to pay. And if you try to be them instead of being yourself, you'll pay the same price that they paid. And, and that's unfortunate. And God gives you is what he gives you to sustain you. He'll never put more on you than you can bear. But of course, you can make a choice to go beyond what you can bear and try to bear it anyway. And that's typically what happens when Michael Jackson and Prince and these guys get addicted to drugs. They try to handle more that they can bear. And they try to go beyond, beyond. And when you do, when you step outside of the realm of the borders that God has given you and the perimeters of your purpose, that's when it'll eventually take you out or destroy your career, destroy your life destroy your family. So I just want to advise people from a musical perspective, be true to your gift, be true to your um, talent, be true to your purpose, be true to your your musical style, your style of art, your style of fashion, whatever your thing is, be true to yourself. It's okay to pick up pieces and learn from other artists that inspire you, but, but definitely keep it original, keep it 100, where you're able to be yourself and be the best version of yourself that you could be. And if Michael had done that, he would probably be alive today being the best Michael Jackson that he could be instead of the best king of pop that they made him to be. And the same people that screamed his name, Michael Jackson, we love you, Michael Jackson, are the same people who talk bad about him in the media when all kind of you know, accusations and speculations came. The same people who say, you know, Jesus Christ, we love you, Hosanna to the king, hallelujah, are the same people who say stone the Christ, kill the Christ on the cross. 
So that's why you, you can't really you can't really buy into all the fame and fortune because people are very fickle. The same people that will buy your album today will be the same ones that talk about you tomorrow and refuse to buy the album. So you can't put your trust in fame. You can't put your trust in persona. persona. You can't put your trust in the, um, the fair weather vibes that you get from people in the industry. They change like the season. You have to put your trust in your purpose, put your trust in, in the God that you believe in and put your trust in people that genuinely love you in your inner circle, your friends and family who would love you whether you're famous or not. Those are the kind of people you want to keep around you. Those are the kind of people you want to keep around you that tell you, hey, you, you know, you need to slow down on the drugs. You need to slow down on the drinking because we need you to stay alive. But a lot of times celebrities have the kind of friend that keep on feeding them drugs and keep on feeding them alcohol and, you know, keep on taking from them. And they take and they take and they take till you have nothing left. And then eventually to a, you get to a point where you don't even really have your life left because you've given it all away to be famous, to be you know, um, infamous. And unfortunately, it could be very well cost you your life. And that's true in, in, in any industry. Yeah, exactly. Celebrities, they surround themselves with people who tell them yes, more exactly. so than telling what they need to hear. More so than no. Right. Yeah, more so uh, than no. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're currently on the radio today, right? Yeah, Correct? Yeah. You're mm-hmm, work, yeah. working on the radio today. Um, mm-hmm, Magic yeah. 102.3 in D.C. Mm-hmm. So... In comparison to music back in the day versus today, I, I have a confession to make. I don't listen to a lot of new artists. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I understand. Like you said, when you, you become your parents, it's just like that music is just not the same. Right. So some of the newer artists, what is, who are some of your, your the ones you think are, are pretty good? I'm a lot like you. Even though I'm in the industry, I'm a radio personality. And by the way, I'm a radio personality. I work with Radio One, which is Kathy Hughes, a black entrepreneur. She owns all the biggest urban radio stations across the country. She also owns TV One, which is a cable network, which is kind of like the modern day BET. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I don't really have a lot. Well, it's a few new artists that I really respect and I like. But like you, I'm not really into some of the music the way that we used to be when we were coming up because it's just a whole nother thing. I don't even really understand some of the language that they speak. And I mean, I'm still in the game. I still interview and work with a lot of these artists, but I can't really completely personally relate to them. I can relate I to them. I thought it was just a- me. Oh, no, not at all. Believe me. I can relate to them from a musical perspective in terms of business. I can relate to them in terms of business and branding, but I can't relate to them in terms of the musical craft, the style. And so, um, and I'm speaking probably more from a hip hop perspective. Now, most of the R&B artists I like. Some of the artists that stand out to me now, I, I certainly love Jay-Z and I love Beyonce. And they, they just took it to a whole nother level in terms of becoming more than just an artist, but they became a brand. I love Kendrick Lamar. He's hip hop. But, you know, but he speaks with a message. He speaks about the issues of today in, in, in his own way, coming from the West Coast. I love Drake. I, I love Chris Brown. Chris Brown is actually from the same hometown where my kids are from. It's a little small country town in Virginia called Tappahannock. So, um, and here's my story about Chris Brown, which is kind of funny. I'll just say this real quickly. When my kids were growing up in school, my daughter used to come to me and say, Daddy, my, my friend's mommy said, can you help her son? Because he can sing and dance and rap. And I said, who is your friend? She said, his name is Christopher Brown. And I'm like, I don't have time to be chasing these little kids around in elementary school. They were like in elementary school at the time. And I said, I don't, you know, I'm thinking like Joe Jackson. I don't have time to be running around trying to get these kids to dance and sing. And she kept, every day she would you know, always come to me, Daddy, my friend Christopher Brown, mother said, can you help her son? I'm like, please tell Christopher Brown's mother that I don't have time to be chasing kids around. I'm not really into managing or trying to work with little kids. And, and then when she became an adult, she said, Dad, do you remember when I was a kid? I used to always tell you about this kid named Christopher Brown. 
He said, well, that's the R&B singer, Chris Brown. I said, what? <laughs> I went crazy. I'm like, oh, my God, I want to sign him up. It's too late now. So that was one opportunity that I missed. I probably could have signed Chris Brown a few years ago, but I missed the opportunity because I just saw him as a kid dancing and jumping and flipping around down in the country of Virginia. And, and now he's a major icon, one of the biggest artists in the industry. So that's my Chris Brown story. But I um, I love so many different artists. I love the different R&B artists. I love music soul child. I love Lettucey. I think she's an amazing singer that's underrated. Mm-hmm. Of course, Kenny Lattimore and I grew up together in church. So I'm always really connected with Kenny and his music, love song, keeping love songs alive, that kind of thing. And so it's just so many different artists that I listen to. Anthony Hamilton, I love Kim, the R&B singer Kim. There's so many different artists that I like and that I enjoy, Jill Scott. But, but most of my favorite artists are probably more R&B-ish. And, and the ones who do hip-hop are the ones that are uniquely different. Their music is more melodic. It's not just a hardcore Southern rap. And I have nothing against Southern rappers. I like some of them as well. I listen to some of their music and it's kind of catchy, but I'm not personally really into it on that kind of level, but I just enjoy it because it's commercialized. It's the song you hear on the radio all the time. You know what I mean? <laughs> you, you, you find yourself singing it even if you don't really like it or even if you don't relate to it. So I'm um, still so that those are just some of the, you know, a few of the artists I really get into. Nowadays, I'm really more into um, a lot of underground artists that don't really get the radio play. You have a lot of artists that are really, really good. They have followings, but they don't really get the play, the loud. And you have Ro James. A lot of these artists don't get re- major radio play, but they have great R&B music, even hip hop. There are a lot of artists that don't make it to the radio. But they, um, so that's what the one thing I love about TikTok and social media. You get a chance to be exposed to all these different artists who would never get that type of exposure had TikTok never come along. Right. Everyday people can expose and showcase their talent, develop an audience and even sell records and make money. You don't have to go gold or platinum. You still can make a great living by selling 100,000 records or 150,000 records as opposed to selling a million records just to become platinum or go gold at, at, at um, 500,000 records. So, you know, the industry is changing, but every generation changes and every generation speaks through their music. I mean, years ago, you had the Motown sound. That generation of artists spoke of the times through their music. So what's going on? Marvin Gaye, um, Mercy, Mercy Me. These guys spoke through their generation. And the generation before that, you had the, the Duke Ellingtons and the Cab Calloways and Ella, Ella Fitzgerald. You had the, um, all these different singers who spoke about their time, Strange Fruit and all these different artists performing their songs. So this generation is really speaking to what's happening in their generation. But the scary part is the biggest music for this generation, they're not really, to me, saying too much of nothing. And that's the part that's scary. It makes me wonder, wow, we don't really have a voice anymore. You know, these guys are not talking about politics per se or, or you know, abortion. They're not talking about police brutality. Some of them are, but I'm saying, but most of them aren't. They're just talking about just random words that just come to their mind. And it really has no kind of message at all to speak of this generation and what's happening in this time. So we need somebody to really surface with a voice who can still keep the music cool and hip, but somebody who can still, and that's what Kendrick Lamar does, I think. J. Cole, Kendrick Lamar, these guys are really talking about some of the stuff that's happening in the times. Kendrick Lamar say, we're going to be all right. By the police brutality, different things, we're going to be all right. And so I respect these kind of guys that they have messages in their music. Yeah, and I have to agree with you on that. That's I think that's one of the reasons. It doesn't seem like they have a calling or a purpose. You know, there's no there's no passion. It's just right. sound. It's sound more so than anything. Not even exactly. even about love, you know. Oh, yeah, they don't definitely. talk about love. They don't talk about, you know, what's going on in the world. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought it was just me just being up in age. Oh, no. <laughs> well, they, they glorify, unfortunately, they glorify death more than they do life. Yeah, and, yeah, and, and exactly. that's what happened with That's what happened with Tupac 
and Notorious B.I.G. Because when we were growing up, hip hop was just more of a fun thing. Like even if rappers rappers had a battle against one another, they did it in a fun way. Like, yeah, I can rap or dance better than you. Come on, let's do it. Let's see who's mm-hmm. the best. But it didn't get to the point where somebody was going to murder and shoot and kill somebody right. over a song or over a neighborhood and something like that. And so now these guys are glorifying guns and I'll shoot you and I'll kill you. I'll murder you. And, and unfortunately, nobody's talking about peace and love and having a great time and, and celebrating life. So I guess there's a voice. So if you're listening to this interview right now and you're an artist, maybe you could be the next artist to talk about something positive. And if there are artists out here that's talking about it, and I'm sure they are, you know, a lot of Christian rappers, a lot of spiritual motivational rappers and different positive poetic rappers that are out here. Unfortunately, these are not the ones that make it to mainstream. These are not the ones we see on the videos all the time. We don't see them in rotation on the radio stations. Um, those are not the songs that make it to the top. So thank God for social media because social media now gives you a platform to showcase your talent, even if you're not even on the radio, even if you're not in mainstream, the mainstream itself is the social media. So now you can develop a following of people who love your type of music, your style of music, even if your songs are not even on the radio. So that's the cool thing about social media nowadays. You can create your own record company. You can create your own books. You can create your own motivational videos. You don't need the machine to get behind you anymore. You can create the machine. You can become the machine, the manufacturing machine, and you can mass produce your own product every day, all day, 24 hours a day for free on social media. Yeah, that's definitely true. And hopefully there'll be a shift with the music yeah. of this of this time. Yeah. Well, Day Day, <laughs> it was great. <laughs> it was great talking to you. I know you're fitting me into your busy schedule today. I'm on my way to the radio station now. <laughs> okay, I wasn't sure. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so uh, how can people uh, get in touch with you? Where get, What are your social media handles? Okay, well, you can check me out on Facebook. At uh, Derek Dejour, D U R I K D A J O U R. Or if you just Google Prince Dejour, it'll come up and lead you there. And on uh, Instagram, I'm at, at Derek Dejour. So it's always Derek Dejour for all my social media handles. Just, just put Derek Dejour in a Prince Dejour, you'll, you'll find it. And of course, you can check me out um, on the number one radio station in the DC area, um, along with Donnie Simpson. We both work at the same radio station, we do radio together. And that's um, Radio 1, and that's Magic 102.3. You can download it on your app at MyMagicDC.com, and you can hear it from all across the country, or you can always listen to it on your Alexa. All you have to do is just say Alexa Magic 102.3 and 92.7. If you say that, it'll come right up. My show is every Sunday from 3 to 7. It's called The, the Magic Sounds of Sunday with Prince Dejour. And, of course, I'm traveling all across the country. I speak at churches, schools, universities. Anybody that would have me to come and share some information, share some love, music, and the message, I'll be happy to come out and share with your, um, your community, you know, your organization, your company. I host different shows and concerts around. Um, you can always reach me by way of email. It's DerekBejour at gmail.com, spelled the same way. So anyway, that, that's how you can reach me, and I guess hopefully we'll connect at some point. Well, thank you, and definitely I hope you will be a, a guest on the show again. We will know. definitely love yeah. to find a spot <laughs> for I would you love on, to. On, on, a, on a regular basis well let me just thank you barbara thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it this means a lot means a lot to me and it meant a lot to me to do this for you because we you know we grew up together we went to school together we came out of some of the same communities and neighborhoods and and we you know we're two of many you know that made it out we you know we found a way to find our niche in life and find something that we were passionate about and we survived we survived the crime we survived you know, the death, we survived the negative influences 
and we made something of ourselves and now here we are you know doing a podcast I'm doing this podcast with you mm-hmm. we're, we're spreading a message of love hope and inspiration to the rest of the people that listen the listening audience uh, that they too can make the same choices that we've made with our lives so thank you so much for having me thank you and I, I really appreciate it. you don't know how much I appreciate you doing this for oh, me too my pleasure <laughs> my pleasure and purpose no doubt alright well you have a good day and I'll definitely be listening later on today okay thanks a lot I'll talk to you soon